Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to draw your attention to the two ways you can support the podcast financially. If you would like to make a one-off donation, I've set up a Just Giving page where you can help the show continue on into the future by donating as much or as little as you like. Alternatively, there are six different levels of subscription, starting from just £5 a month, over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. There, you'll find two new podcast series, a monthly bulletin, group and personal Zoom meetings, articles, mini-episodes attached to this series, and even the chance to have some conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, and I'd greatly appreciate any help you can manage. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who's been one of the major figures of British classical music life for the last 40 years or so. He's held title positions in the UK, US, Canada and Australia in both Concert Hall and Opera House, as well as conducting the last night of the proms on no fewer than 12 occasions. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sir Andrew Davis. Andrew, lovely to speak to you today. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, and under the circumstances, you know, we're all going through this uh, plague, <laughs> and uh, which you know is restricting very much. And of course, you know, I mean, people in in the arts, in the performing arts, are going to be the last people about in, in the world to go back to work. I'm convinced of it. I think because... you're right. Yeah, yeah. Can I take you right back to the beginning? Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe happier times, um, and find out when music first came into your life and how. Well, my mother always used to say I sang before I spoke. <laughs> but of course, you know, whether what I was doing was actually melodic or just the sort of burblings that come from most infants <laughs> heard with the doting ears of a parent, I don't know. Mm. But but I did love to sing, and, um, you know, I, I joined... Uh, the parish church choir in in Watford, where we grew up, you know, when I was as soon as I could, uh, my father sang in the choir as well, and and um, I actually had a nice voice, and I used to sing a lot of solos, you know, Mendelssohn, hear my prayer, and stuff like that, and um, so yes, and then I started to play the piano when I was five, I think, and I couldn't be kept away from it. Uh, and then, uh, at the age of 11, I guess, after, uh, I started to go to Royal Academy of Music in London on Saturday mornings, mm. where I had some wonderful teachers. And then, I suppose I was about 13 and a half, something like that, my voice broke, <laughs> as, it, as it does. And the organist of the church asked me if I'd like to be his assistant organist, because his assistant organist had just left. And so I said, and I said yes, and then I... Uh, taught myself for a while and then I um, I think at, the, at this organist's suggestion I I went and, and played to Peter Herford who was the organist at St Albans Cathedral at the, at the time he was there for 20 years actually this was towards the beginning he was probably about 30 when I went I was probably about 15 or 16 or something and so I used to get out of games <laughs> on Wednesday afternoons and take the bus over from Watford to St. Albans um, and had lessons with him. And uh, uh, he was a real inspiration to me. And, and then eventually I took the um, organ, the, the trials for the organ scholarship at King's College, Cambridge. And, and much to my surprise, won it. 
Uh, and then, of course, I was in Cambridge for four years. Mm. And what, um, was it at Cambridge that you first encountered conducting, or were you conducting the choir at your parish church in Watford? No, no. I mean, I, I think I'd conducted one thing. A sort of local string group in, uh, asked me to help them out in one piece they were having trouble doing without a conductor. <laughs> but that was it. And, and yeah. then, of course, you know, my, my focus especially to begin with in Cambridge was totally on on uh, the kings and the choir and the daily services almost mm. daily uh, um, because you know I although I'd of course had a uh, grown up in singing and then then playing at in in the parish church I mean I the whole cathedral tradition of daily services and um, so on was was not familiar to me. So there's a lot of repertoire, you know, Stanford in a <laughs> howls. I did start conducting when I was in Cambridge, right. uh, and and I did two uh, in two summers. I I went to the music festival, whatever you call it, in in Canford, oh, yes. in Dorset, mm. where where George Hurst taught, mm. and and I, so I, I always my first conducting teacher was George Hurst, admittedly only in for two couple of two week summer courses. Mm. But uh, he, uh, you know, if I have any technique, it started with with him. Mm. Uh, and um, he, he, he was a wonderful teacher, actually. And, and actually, I, I have this memory of, of all the conducting students, and there are quite a lot of them, out on the lawn, <laughs> outside somewhere, with just following George's beating patterns. Mm. <laughs> um, so yes, and then I did start conducting uh, in Cambridge, uh, and I was fortunate in 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 a sense because um, you know David Wilcox, that was before he was a sir, mm. um, uh, was organist and, uh, and master of the choristers at, at Kings. And uh, first of all, I, I mean I can't talk about my uh, educa musical education without talking about him because uh, he was a, a real perfectionist. Mm. And you know, it's not that easy if you're, you know, if you're in a cathedral or a place like King's and you have services every day, you know, first of all, it requires to be able to learn quickly and, and to assimilate things quickly. But it also means you have to be very prepared and as I say, because, uh, as I said before, because I hadn't grown up in that tradition, there were, I had to, uh, there's a lot of music that I didn't know. So I, I used to have to go into the chapel in the dead of night, you know, and, you know, I had to go and do a lot of practice. Um, but um, I think it was after the first summer I'd, I'd been studying with, with George Hurst, I think, um, that David Wilcox, who was also the conductor of Comes the Cambridge University Music Society, hmm. uh, both chorus and orchestra. And he said, would I like to conduct a piece in one of the concerts the next season? And I said, yes, I'd love to. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> um, and so he said, he suggested the piece that I might like to do. So the first full orchestra piece I ever conducted was... Are you, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. The Schoenberg Five Pieces for Orchestra. 
Oh, wow. There, there was yeah. I thinking, well, is it going to be you know, Elgos cocaine or in the South or, you know? And, yeah, no, well, you know, I, I wasn't at that point a fantastic, you know, a, a passionate Elgarian. It, that came a little bit later. Uh, but at the time, I was a passionate Tibetan, as indeed I still am. Um, but uh, one of the summers, and I don't remember which, which years these were, the, the Choir of Kings, we did a European tour which started in, in Stuttgart, as I recall, and ended in, uh, in Sweden, I think, in uh, uh, Uppsala. Mm. And I have, a, I have a photograph that someone took of me in, a, in the upper bunk on the ferry from, from Gothenburg, Jotibold, to, to the Harwich, mm. uh, studying the Schoenberg five pieces <laughs> for orchestra. There's a miniature score with a pink cover. <laughs> I can't believe um, that's the first piece you ever conducted. The first movement of that is an absolute sod to conduct. <laughs> um, yeah, that, oh, absolutely. That, that, that is baptism of the, fire like you cannot believe. Yeah, no, I mean, but somehow, you know, you thought, oh, well, this is tricky. You know, yeah. I can do this. <laughs> um, you know, and there are things when you do when you're young, later on you think, good God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, we, um, well, we can talk about this later, I suppose, if you, if you want to sort of go through things chronologically. But that, so yeah. Yeah. then uh, the next season I conducted the bag piling show. But then, you know, I was doing other things. I was get unfinished symphony and uh, mm. Harold in Italy which was, you know, uh, um, uh, early uh, exposure to one of my other hero composers. Mm. Um, and then, because I suppose when I went up to King's, I thought if I'd be lucky, I'd come out the other end and, and get into the English cathedral area, mm. you know, lucky become a cathedral organist somewhere and I as I say I, I, I do still love that music very much but um, uh, then I then the conducting bug really hit me so uh, th then I anyway I, I decided that um, I wanted to go and study somewhere yes and, and at the time the two great teachers in Europe were Ferrara Franco Ferrara who of course taught in the summer in, in Siena and but in the winter, he taught at Santa Cecilia in Rome. And the other one was uh, Hans Swarovski, yes, who was a famous you know, teacher in Vienna who could taught Sergio Yosawa and Zubin Mater and all these people. Mm. Um, so I'd done four years at Cambridge. Um, so I went to both the Austrian Cultural Institute and the Italian Cultural Institute in, in London. And basically, I asked them about the courses and, and the... Uh, in, the Austrians said, well, you know, I said, how long is the course? Well, it's three years, can be four, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and then I went to uh, the Italian Cultural Institute and said, you know, Ferrara's courses, how, how, how long do you have to enroll for? I said, ah, come vuole, due anni, tre anni, un anno, come, come, non, non si importa. So I thought, okay, well, that's for me then. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I went and I started studied for a year there and what was his what was his what was his teaching style like what did he because you know uh, George Hurst has appeared many times on the previous episodes of this podcast and uh, for all, sure. you know, uh, many people who you know talked about his personality but also his teaching style but Franco Ferraro has never appeared on any of the previous podcasts I'm intrigued to know what he was like well I mean he, he was a, an extraordinary man I don't know if you know much about him but he uh, 
as a young man, I think I think he was a violinist. I believe he was leader concertmaster in one of the Italian orchestras. But um, uh, you know, when he started conducting, everyone everyone was very excited, and and um, uh, you know, his concerts became the concerts to go to. Mm. Um, and he could act in the Berlin Phil uh, when he was young, for instance, mm. uh, and was in demand. But then he started passing out in concerts. Oh. And there are, so there's, oh, Lord, he's epileptic. Or whether I feel sure, and I, I have other people who, who studied with him and felt the same way. It was just that he, I don't know, somehow he felt the music too intensely. Mm. And he just, you know, his his body wouldn't take it. So, mm. so, so that was sort of the end of his his career because he, you know, he couldn't. Uh, people used to make jokes about it. You know, nasty things. Say, oh, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going to go and see if there are a pass out on the podium. You know, <laughs> uh, and um, so, he, but he became very famous as a teacher, and he taught a lot of people in Siena uh, in the summer. But. Um, the course in, in, in Santa Cecilia was in the Conservatorio. And until the year I went, they'd always had a group of, um, a, a decent-sized group every week, once a week, of musicians from the Academia di Santa Cecilia, you know, mm. the orchestra that Tony Papano now has, which was great. But <laughs> the year I was there, Suddenly, the funding for the, this was withdrawn, and I, ironically, I gather it was restored the next year. <laughs> so <clears throat> there were no professional music musicians to, to, to for the orchestra. Actually, rumor has it, very scurrilous rumor, that the the um, the director of the conservatorio at that time was uh, Renato Fasano, uh, and he was also conductor of the, what was he called? Uh, wait a minute, I Virtuosi di Roma. He had this chamber orchestra. And, and the scuttlebutt was that he, he'd taken the money away from the conducting class so that he could promote his, <laughs> his orchestra. <laughs> nah, well, it's <laughs> Italian politics for you. It could be true. Oh, Lordy, don't get me in there. Yeah. In that area. <laughs> right. But so, so we had a bunch of kids, you know, from the, from the conservatorio. Um, and, you know, they will be 14, 15, 16-year-olds sometimes, you know, who had really little orchestra experience. I don't think we had an oboe, oboist from the beginning of the season to the end. Mm. So, you know, the, the first oboe part was sometimes played by a flute and the second, second oboe part was by, played by a clarinet, but nobody had thought to transpose the part. So, <laughs> you know, it was, and he was very frustrated by this. Mm. So... Um, you know, he, he, he uh, there were several times when he finished the class early because he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and he wasn't, in any case, he didn't talk to you about technique very much. Right. Uh, so I remember one day, and I went to him after the class and said, Maestro, I, you know, I couldn't get this together. Hmm. Uh, can, can you explain to me why? And he did. He said, oh, it's because you did this and you didn't do that. Mm. But he, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing he would do as a matter of course. It wasn't like George Hurst, who was, well, I mean, you know, we, it was cramming, but, but technique was everything. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I remember one of the things that George used to do is, you know, you'd be on the podium and he would sit at the back of the orchestra and say, all right, 
what you have to do, you have to, you know, you know the score, just look at me and, and do what I do. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, which was some people like, I mean, I, you know, I just did it. And I, I'd learned a lot from that, actually, particularly about fluidity. And, and I remember, because he made me do uh, Black Revy on Fawn like that. Mm. And a much younger colleague of mine with whom I worked at Climborn, uh, years and years and years later, said to me, uh, we, well, the first time we met, uh, we, uh, we were working together on something, and, and he said to me, you know, I used to hate you. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, when I was studying with George and we, we were doing, um, you know, working on La Primitino Thorn, and he, you know, he did his, this stunt of going to the back of the auction and telling this other conductor to, follow him you know yes. do, do, do what he did and eventually you know this colleague of mine uh, uh, said to him uh, stop and said I, I i'm finding this very frustrating uh, mr Hurst. i i i I'm, I'm having trouble just doing this and he went back and said to him, well well andrew davis didn't have trouble <laughs> <laughs> so he presented me for years because <laughs> through no fault of my own no, no nothing um, at all <laughs> but, the thing about throughout, well, we, we, so we had one orchestral session a week, and I remember, you know, we did Schubert five, and I don't remember what else, frankly, but, um, and we would have classes every day uh, in, in a room with, with piano, um, basically when, when we started opera. Mm. Working on the first opera was Barbara Seville, Barbiera de Sevilla, and um, then I think the next thing we worked on was Don Carlo, mm. you know, definitely Don Carlo, not Don Carlos, mm. because I, I think Fra was one of those people that the idea of, of singing Verdi in French would have been anathema. <laughs> and and he, he, he was very interesting that on the whole subject of Verdi, you know, he, because, you know, his, his views had eventually come out during the course of this year. <clears throat> and then, and of course, he, he was crazy about Verdi. Mm. Um, Actually, no, I think it wasn't Don Carlo. We did that later, but it was probably Rigoletto. But it eventually emerged that he was of the school of Italian musical thought that, that had decided that Falstaff and, and Otello, the last two operas, weren't the peak of Verdi's uh, life's work because he had been seduced by that dreadful man in Germany to thinking he should write music dramas, you know? <laughs> so, um, well, and, many people have been seduced by Wagner. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there are still Italy, Italian musicians who, who feel that way too. So mm. for him, the greatest, if you had to choose, the greatest Verdi opera was, was Rigoletto. And I know what he means. It's just an extraordinarily perfect piece. Mm. Um, uh, so, and, but it was all Italian repertoire that we started, as far as I remember. You know, no French operas or anything. Mm. So eventually, he said, we were asked, you know, if we could suggest what operas we would like to study. So mm. went around the class, it came to me, and I said, Lulu. And it was like, there was an audible gasp from the rest <laughs> of the class. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, no. <laughs>
so after leaving or finishing with Florara, um, yeah. I'm assuming you're then out into the big wide world um, conducting. Yes. And pretty soon you get uh, the job of associate conductor with the BBC Scottish. So you tell me about the associate conductor in Scotland. Yeah, well, uh, briefly, when I came back from Rome, I, I, I did various things. Uh, I, I was the assistant organist to Martindale Sidwell. Do you know about him? No. Not many people seem to remember him. He, he was the organist of Hampstead Parish Church and of St. Clement Danes in the Strand. And so I was his assistant organist. Um, uh, but he also conducted the London Bach Orchestra. Mm. And, and and did quite a lot of art. He was it was interesting. He was he was sort of grumpy and <laughs> used to put orchestral musicians back up sometimes. But he was he was a wonderful musician. But anyway, uh, and then I did some proofreading for shots. Mm. <laughs> I remember proofreading the uh, the orchestral parts for Act One of Tippett's opera, The Knot Garden, mm. and they had a t they had terrible copyists at that point. And, you know, you were supposed to sort of correct these these parts, which involved, you know, whiteout and inking things over. I mean, this was all primitive days. Yeah. Uh, and I, it was driving me crazy. And, and the, these parts, for the most part, were so bad. Eventually, I, I sent about probably a third of them back and wow. said, you, these have to be done again. You know, you can't. You, you, the, nobody can play from this. Well, they solved the problem. They fired me as a proofreader. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, but it's interesting that that you know I would work on on Tippet. Actually, uh, the uh, the really exciting thing at that point was I was uh, they I had to proofread the copyist score against Michael's original score for the Songs for Dolls. Mm. You know, which uh, and I I can't just think I had Michael's original manuscript in wow. my little house where I was living at the time. Anyway, uh, so. But then I did apply for the job with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Now, it so happened that a great friend of mine, Glyn Bragg, uh, been the three of us who were kind of inseparable at Cambridge were Glyn, myself, and Brian Kay, uh, who then went on to you know, be a rather well-known broadcaster and the That's conductor right, yeah, of the yeah. Oral Society and so on. Anyway, Glyn had, had had the job of timpanist in the orchestra. So I called him at one point and said, I haven't heard anything about the, uh, the auditions for the assistant uh, uh, conductor position. Uh, can you find out anything? So he, he went one lunchtime to the office of the lady who was dealing with all the applications, and they were sitting in three piles. There was a yes pile, people, they were definitely going to audition. There was a no pile, and there was a maybe pile. Mm. And I was in the maybe pile, so Glenn took the, took my application from the maybe pile and put it in the yes pile. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> and I, I, I always, I've always told him that my entire career is his fault. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I I did then take the audition. I think it was in August of uh, nineteen seventy. Yes, that's right. And uh, Sir William Glock was the head of the panel. And they gave me the job, and I was about to. I was about to start in, um, I think, in the middle of November. Hmm. And then I got the phone call. The BBC Symphony Orchestra had a cancellation, and William Glock decided that he would go out on a limb and 
So they asked me to conduct this concert with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in the Festival Hall, mm. um, which the main piece was the Glagolitic Mass of oh, Janacek. And I had four, four days before the first rehearsal to learn it. <laughs> uh, and the funny thing was, I had a recording of it, a rather famous recording of it uh, on LP of, by, by um, Carol Anschell and the Czech Philharmonic, mm. which funnily enough, the, it is weird how these things happen sometimes. I'm a great believer in synchronicity. But um, uh, I had a recording of it, which David Atherton had given me for a 21st birthday present. Wow. But, <laughs> but I, it already been packed away and, and sent in a trunk up to Glasgow. For <laughs> so anyway, but to the long and uh, short of this is, is that I conducted the concert and it was successful. And so then I did spend two years, wonderful years in Glasgow, in which I had, you know, I learned again in, in quite a hurry. I, I got an enormous amount of repertoire on my belt. My, my, the contract was for 40 programs a year. Mm. Now, uh, you know, and we do three in a week, and then two of which, perhaps the main work of symphony or something, would be duplicated. But again, you had to go get through a tremendous amount of repertoire. And so, and they were such a lovely group of musicians, very um, tolerant. And it's, it sounds like you had exactly the same, almost the same numbers that Christopher Seaman told me about his time up there. Um, well, Chris, Chris yeah. had been. Chris had been the assistant conductor right before me. Yes, yeah. And um, uh, uh, James Lochran was the chief conductor at the time. And then at the end of the first year I spent up there, uh, Jimmy Lochran went, went to the Halle Orchestra. Yes. Uh, and so then the person to come in to follow him was Chris Seaman. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, he, you know, just a year after he had been assistant conductor, I've known Chris for a very long time. Well, he said, this, yeah. he said the same as you, does that during his time as assistant, he did at least 60 broadcasts, if not more. And the amount of music that you get through or got through in those years as assistant or associate, he said, he said was invaluable. Most of the time, it was the first time he ever did anything or first time he'd done a repertoire. He said it was yeah. literally sink or swim, was the exact words he used. Yeah, that was exactly my experience. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it was, you know, a lot of people over the years had that job. Colin had that job. I think Simon Rattle had that job. I think. That's right, <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> and then I think it was shortly after Simon did it that the position ceased to exist. But it was an extraordinary opportunity for him. Don't you think it's a shame that those positions have gone from the BBC jobs? Because... because Very people... much so. But that, that for years was the only one of its kind, in, even in the BBC. Um, oh, I, there were some wonderful characters. The principal second violin, his name was Johnny Crossan, <laughs> and he had a thick Glaswegian accent. And I remember one rehearsal, he'd say, um, Mr. Davis, you like your... And I turned to the leader and I said, what did he say? <laughs> and he said, I don't know, we've all been trying to figure that out for years. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was those were two wonderful years, I have to say. And then mm. you know, uh, but because of the this festival hall concert that I'd done just before I started those two years, then uh, you know people kind of started to notice me, and and mm. I I I did quite a lot of 
concerts with other orchestras in the country during the, the two years I was still in Glasgow and, and quite a lot with the Philharmonia. And eventually I had the position of um, associate conductor with the Philharmonia Orchestra. I remember doing a, a marvellous Elgar Festival in the Festival Hall in Queen Elizabeth Hall. I played in that too. I played the piano sonata and the piano quintet. And then in the mid-70s, I also had um, a posi similar position with the, with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. Mm. And that was... Um, that was actually sort of started things off for me in a way because uh, I they had they had a seminar for young British conductors, four conductors usually, and it was a two week seminar supervised by Sir Charles Groves, mm. whom I actually already knew because Jonathan Groves, his son, who is now one of the most respected uh, agents in uh, managers of, of artists anywhere yeah, was was a was a chorister at king's as was andrew mariner who mm -hmm. was just retired i understand for as principal clarinet of the lso and roy goodman mm -hmm. who there's <laughs> a famous recording of, of his from kings of the allegri miserere which he sings this impossibly high sort of descan part anyway uh, so so I, I did a, it was in 1969, I took part in this seminar. One of the other participants was uh, John Elliott Gardner, whom mm. I'd also known for a long time because we were at Cambridge together. So uh, good Lord, I could talk about this stuff uh, <laughs> until, until the cows came home, as they say. <laughs> but I remember one of the people doing um, uh, Leo number, Nora number three, I'm sure, and there's a sort of notorious passage just for the end. And it wouldn't go the way it was supposed to. So Charles got up on the podium and said, "No, just you know, you have to be very calm and uh, and you know, do a sort of don't panic thing for the orchestra." Mm. And so he did it, and they played it, and it was perfectly together. Uh, and I was sitting out in the uh, audience seats, and he came down, sat beside me, and and he said. You've no idea how relieved I am that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he was wonderful. And, and you know, in the time when I was associate conductor there, uh, I, I spent quite a lot of time with him. He, he was a wonderful man. And I remember being at his house one day, and he just received a copy. It was an LP, of course, in those days, of yeah. his recording of, of The Devious Mass of Life. And we sat in his study and listened to this. And he, I don't know, he was, he, he, he was just sat there beaming with, how should I call it, modest pride, because he was a very modest man. Um, and listening to this glorious music. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so there we are. Um, so that takes, takes us up to my time in Scotland a little bit after, mm. I suppose. I've looked at where you've been, um, 13 years in t with the music director of Toronto Symphony Orchestra and now conductor laureate. You did 12 years of music director in Glyndebourne, 11 with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, 20, 20 years in counting in Chicago with the Lyric Opera and seven years in Melbourne. But the, That's the, right. 
the longest relationship of those, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, as it will be 50 years this year since the first time you conducted the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I wanted to phone yeah. in on them because it's an orchestra I've conducted many times, love working with, but there's that special thing about BBC Orchestras about the repertoire that you, you conduct, um, especially around prom time, because you have so much to do. Um, did you enjoy that pressure of learning all of the repertoire, be it left field, brand new, stuff that they found on the back of the BBC Archive Library? Uh, and uh -huh. Also, um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind telling us about what it's like to conduct the last night of the proms, because um, it's a pretty special concert, isn't it? Yes. Well, uh, as I say, I you know, I, 1970 was my first concert with the BBC, and and I over the years I wasn't necessarily back with them every year, but but I I was a fairly regular visitor. Hmm. Uh, and then um, my predecessor was was Sir John Pritchard, hmm. another very important person person in my life because. Uh, you know, uh, well, we'll talk about Glyndebourne in a minute. So let's, let's talk about the BBC. Mm. Uh, and um, so uh, they knew that John, Sir John, was leaving, and uh, I did several concerts with them. And Roger Wright, who was then the producer, um, said to me, "We should find a really good program for you." So I did a program. I think it had the Pines of Rome and Complete Daphnis and Chloe in it, or something. <laughs> uh, and um, apparently, uh, Roger had been trying to point Sir John Drummond in my direction for for a bit. Yeah. And um, so, uh, anyway, after this concert, uh, John Drummond was convinced and offered me the job. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, always he would say afterwards, "Well, well, uh, well, that was that, that was the." Best decision I ever made in my life. <laughs> but he apparently needed persuading. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I, I must say, they were, they were great years. Um, mm. But interesting enough, of course, during the prom season, I was all, also very busy at Blindborn because yes. I, you know, I had that post simultaneously. <clears throat> um, and repertoire, it was very exciting. Uh, we did uh, all sorts of of things, you know, of course, with the emphasis on contemporary and 20th century music. Mm -hmm. uh, in my second year there, so so this would have been uh, in 1990, uh, at the beginning of that season, the orchestra celebrated its 60th anniversary. As you know, it was founded in 1930. So we did five concerts in the festival hall to open the season, mm. which were all devoted to pieces that had either been given their world or British premieres by the BBC Symphony Orchestra over, over the years. And the first concert went like this. It was the Weber Tassicalia, the, the Berg Violin Concerto, which was played by Nigel Kennedy, <laughs> who showed up for the concert <coughs> Wearing a green suit and purple makeup, all the other way around. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was being televised, and some television producer saying, "said Have you seen Nigel?" I said, uh, "Yeah." He said, "Well, he can't wear that. Go and tell him. Tell him he can't wear that." And I said, "I'm not telling him anything of the sort. I don't care what he wears as long as he plays brilliantly, which he did, of course." Yeah. So that was that. That was the first part. Baby Pascal, your big violin, Lincolnshire, the interval. Boulez Rituel, 
which, as you know, requires a completely different setup for the stage. Mm. Uh, another interval, Schoenberger Wartung with Gwyneth Jones. <laughs> so that gives you an idea. And I remember, I, I remember doing Roberto Gerard's third symphony, I think, which has a tape in it as well. And <laughs> I, I, it was funny because when they, this came up, I thought, oh, well, that's fantastic. Because I remember listening on the radio to the premiere of that. Because I was in bed with chicken pox. <laughs> I must have been sort of 16, I think. Uh, rather advanced age to get chicken pox. But I, and I remember listening to this concert, which, which had this th third symphony of Roberto Gerard. And I remember at the very end, a, a, a stentorian voice from the back of the hall yelled, Rubbish! <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, so you know, but that gives you an idea of the breadth of repertoire that we that we did, mm. and of course, we you know I, one of the things that delighted me, I was able to do a lot of tippet. Yes. I remember, I mean, which included in the proms <coughs> the the European premiere of the Mask of Time, his <coughs> huge, well, I won't say oratorio because he hated that word, mm. but this. Uh, um, so, so that was great. I mean, I remember we played the fourth symphony quite a lot, uh, and we took it on tour and we played it in Vienna. Mm. And I was nervous. I'm thinking, oh, you know, the Viennese they're, they're so uh, conservative, and you know, they went like it. They went nuts. It was mm. really great. And uh, I remember we took the second symphony on to America. I remember playing it in Philadelphia. Anyway, uh, I'm getting all weepy and nostalgic. <laughs> but, but it was a great time. <clears throat> the bit that, I, if I was conducting the last night, the problems that would frighten the life out of me is the speech. Did you write, yeah, your, well, did you write your speeches or was the, did somebody else have their hand in it? Uh, and, and how was it for you doing the speech? Well, yeah, I always used to say that I looked forward to the last night with a mixture of eager anticipation and total dread. <laughs> um, because, I mean, the, the sort of crowd control aspect of it was always challenging, shall we say. Yes. And then the speech, the speech was always, uh, and did anyone ever have a hand in it? Well, yes, to the extent that you would be given a list of, you know, there were 96 concerts and 45 different orchestras, so you had to do that bit of yes. um, sort of statistics thing. That was always mandatory in those days. Otherwise, you'd have your own devices. And every year, I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to write it like a month before, so you know. And I never did. Hmm. I'd usually sort of make it up in the bath the night before, <laughs> um, uh, and then I would make rough notes. And it always used to, you know, the producers would say, "Have you written it out?" Said, well, no, not exactly. Can we see? Well, no, you wouldn't understand if you could see it, you know. <laughs> um, so, but it was, uh, and there, but there were two years that were sort of notable. One was when I sang it, you know, which is, I sang, this is the very model of a modern music festival, um, which was sort of terrifying at the time. And, and funnily enough, you can find it on YouTube, but only audio. Because right. I'd love to see what it looked like. Um, and it was quite a stunt, I suppose. Uh, but the other occasion was the last night of the proms, which is two weeks to the day after the death of Princess Diana. Yes. Uh, and, of course, that was 
the whole nation was this in, in this terrible kind of state of shock. Mm. Uh, and, but the interesting thing is, in those intervening two weeks, two other people died. One was George Schulte, and the other was Mother Teresa. Mm. So in the end, I ended up making a speech talking about all three of them and what in their different ways they'd given to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that one I did write out, of course, but um, it, it was tricky mm. um, because, you know, this is such a f festive event, but the mood of the whole country was such that there was no way one could not do anything. And, and I had a lot of very nice you know, emails or letters or whatever after saying you really helped me to uh you know get through this mm. and i even had a letter from a scottish clergyman saying if i ever wanted to come and give a sermon he would welcome me <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you had a similar experience to your successor uh, who told me on the podcast about the, the, the last night of the proms in 2001, yeah. of course. After Leonard, the, yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, and yeah, it, you just don't, you just don't know what's going to happen in the world just before your, your, um, your last night, do you? No, you don't. And the fascinating thing is, well, fascinating, I don't know that both the, in the, the prom, the last night of the proms that I was supposed to conduct and the one that Leonard conducted in 2001 were scheduled to include a short ride in a fast machine mm. by John Adams. That's right. That is isn't that right. weird? Yeah, very it, weird. Isn't that weird? And of course, on neither occasion was no. it done. And I'm assuming nobody's nobody's tried to program it since, out of the pure coincidental possibility of something happening again. Yeah, another last night I remember. Oh, anyway, the first half ended with Belshazzar's feast. Mm. Um, which was and, a stonking performance, by the way. Well, it was it was about the fastest performance that there's ever been. As far as I know, I've been listening to it after and thought, "Holy cow, what's yeah. going on?" You know. Yeah. And anyway, and, and of course, the, the crowd, as they say, went wild. Mm. But as a result, they were so sort of wound up by this that the second half they were even more boisterous than usual. And I remember talking talking to John Drummond afterwards saying, oh my God, they were such a handful. He said, well, he said, it's my fault, it's my fault. Shouldn't put Belshazzar's feast there. Uh, <laughs> and so the, we, we resolved that the next year we wouldn't make that same mistake. So the next year we ended the first half with a prelude and Libra's taught from Tristan and his holder. <laughs> and they were, the, the, the promos were much more malleable after that, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, just say a, a brief word about Toronto. Mm, um, of course, yeah, yeah. Mm. Since uh, you know that was before the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I mean, and, and that orchestra again. Now that orchestra I have conducted every season since 1974, which is that's that's an absolute record because uh, you know there were mm. some years of BBC I didn't. Um, and uh, the, the extraordinary thing about that was. Uh, I told you that my uh, debut concert with the BBC Symphony Orchestra was the Glagolitic Mass of Janacek. Mm. Well, Toronto had had, well, Seiji Ozawa was there for four years. And then Karel Anchel, the conductor of the Czech Philharmonic, mm. was there 
for four years. And that was a brilliant coup by Walter Homburger, who was the manager of the orchestra, uh, because in 1968, I'd just come back. Yes, I'd just come back from, from Rome, and I was actually staying in the uh, apartment of a, of a friend who was a rather large apartment. He had two people, two Czechs from Prague were there, and that was the, while in that time was when the Russians moved into Prague to put, put down the so-called Prague Spring of Alexander Dubček. Mm. Uh, and so Anshel, who had been a great supporter of the, of this movement uh, was a well. He 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 was actually in America conducting the Cleveland Orchestra on tour, and Walter Homburger from Toronto went down to him and said, "Would you like a job?" And he said yes, uh, and and moved right to Toronto, um, and his family got out of Czechoslovakia. Anyway, um, so uh, but but he died having conducted the orchestra for four years. And the season after his death, they were trying to keep as many of his programs as possible. Mm. And one of them included the Glagolithic Mass. And so I was invited to conduct that concert, which was in May of, <coughs> May of 74. And in June, Walter Homer came over to England and offered me the job. So actually, the Glagolithic Mass had, uh, it was a bit of a, a pivotal piece for me yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Anyway, I, you know, I, I conducted the orchestra for 13 years, again, a wonderful time, and uh, moved to a new hall, which was acoustically less than what we had dreamed of, but <laughs> and it was eventually fixed 20 years later in 2002, I think. Um, but it was, again, uh, uh, and I took them on tours, we made recordings, and, and um, they are a wonderful, wonderful orchestra, I have to say. Um, so I've been fortunate. Anyway, so that was that. Uh, do you want to talk about Glyborn at all? Um, I was going to actually ask a more generic question about travelling next. Um, because, okay. uh, I mean, around the time you finish with the BBC, um, you start at the Chicago Lyric Opera. But during those 20 years, you did seven years in Melbourne. And, of course, you would have been conducting every season in Toronto, as you just said, and also back with the BBC. How do you cope with all of those air miles and travel? Do you have any tips for young conductors other than just don't do it? But <laughs> what tips do you have about um, <laughs> well, sure that you're ready for the first rehearsal and you're not in a fog of jet lag? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I would say to young conductors is that Make sure your manager doesn't give you a concert in, in, in Melbourne one week and then the next week gives you a concert in, in Dusseldorf. You know? yeah. <laughs> Managers, I mean, on the, on the whole, do try very much to sort of make people's schedules as logical as possible, yes. in my experience. But I think, you know, uh, if you're traveling between wildly diverse time zones, you know, it can be, it can be tiring. Mm. More so as you get older, I would say. Mm. Mm. I mean, I would, I would probably have stayed on longer as chief conductor in Melbourne, but I was going three times a year, mm. and I found it, you know, after a while, you know, that's a killer. Mm. The whole, you know, your whole schedule is upside down. You're awake when you should be sleeping, and so on. Um, but um, I enjoyed it enormously, mm. and. Um, you know, some, some things more than others. And there's this interesting thing that, you know, you go to an orchestra you don't know. And, well, interesting thing about orchestras is they're very, they 
could sort of sum up a conductor huh. or their feelings about a conductor very quickly. It's normally five or ten minutes, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, that's right. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there are occasions when you go to an auction you've never been to before and you click straight away. Mm. I remember conducting a concert with, with the Munich Philharmonic <coughs> with their chorus, and I'd never been to them before. And it was the last concert of the season, it, and it was the Dream of Gerontius. Mm. Now, I, the, I knew the chorus would be very well prepared because the chorus master, I'd been in Frankfurt earlier, and he came out to Frankfurt and he went through the score with a fine-tooth comb. Mm. And sure enough, you know, when I got to, got to Munich, they, everything that I'd asked him about, he prepared perfectly. Mm. Uh, but the orchestra, as I say, it was the last concert of the season, so it's, uh, oh, it's, oh, it's a choral music, choral concert with music by Elgar, English, mm. you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I, 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 I brought him for the first rehearsal. And I said, you know, good afternoon, whatever. And, and, and we started. And one of the things that really thrilled me was that by the time we got to the end of the prelude, mm. I wasn't so much that they, I, they obviously thought I was okay, but they were so hooked by mm. the music. It was, and that, that was so wonderful to see because, and well, we know that the Dream of Gerontius actually had his first success in Germany um, <clears throat> because the premiere in, in Birmingham was, was a, a flop. Yes. I mean, very, very underprepared and so on. But, um, so you, you, you never know. So, uh, so young conductor going to a new orchestra, I, I would just say, be yourself. Mm. Um, be friendly. Don't talk too much. <laughs> uh, but um, just you know, to be true to yourself, mm. and you know, different personalities click better with different orchestras. That'll always be the case. But um, yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. Um, do you teach? And if so, do you enjoy it? No, no, I never have. The only time I, I uh, many years ago, a friend of mine who was at the time the chorus master of the of the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus uh, was involved with oh I think it was the Association of uh, of American Choral, Choral Foundation or something anyway they had a, a two-week course in Philadelphia and and the teachers were were him and two other choral conductors Margaret Hillis who was a very famous conductor of the of the Chicago Symphony Chorus and uh, another guy who had a marvelous chamber choir in Philadelphia. Anyway, they did the, and I came in for the last uh, six days, I think, mm. and, and, and did some orchestral stuff with them, uh, you know, chorus and orchestra. Yes. Yeah. And that's the only time I've formally taught. And I had, I, it was one of the best weeks of my life. So <clears throat> I, I would love to teach, mm. um, you know, I, I, and then I've had a couple of, two or three people who I've sort of had under my wing for for a bit. I mean, one uh, in uh, Toronto, Hermano Florio was uh, my student, if you like, uh, and the assistant. And he, he has been for years the conductor of, of the Houston Ballet um, and then several other people, in, including a very talented young conductor um Tiani Lu who who assisted me in Melbourne mm. but uh, and so you know and, and then with under that sense you kind of you you go 
there's a piece they particularly want to pick your brains about. I enjoy that. But I would actually love to do some class teaching at some point. I just haven't had the time for years. And and, and then finding finding the right environment for it where you can be assured that the level of people that you get is going to be sufficiently interesting, I suppose. I've asked every conductor this pretty much. When you come to learn a new score, and let's face it, with your work with the BBC and elsewhere, you've seen a lot of new scores. How do you go about preparing a score? How do you go about learning it? Do you have a set process? Are you a writer in your scores? Do you use colours? I'm a user of colours, but many of the people who've come on the podcast say they prefer not to write anything at all. What's your process or strategy? I'm I'm absolutely in in the latter camp. I'm rather famous for... You know, you know, like a young student will come and look at a score you mean and say, you haven't written anything in it. <laughs> I say, well, no, the composer did, and that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, in terms of, I've never been particularly organized. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things, if I'm, if I'm preparing a new big piece, like an opera I haven't conducted, then, you know, I'll start working on it at least a year before, probably. Yes. And then coming back to it off and on. Um, and when it's sort of like that with, with all, all sort of big pieces that, that I, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say that, uh, I mean, the, the golden rule is to give yourself enough time. Mm-hmm. Sir John Pritchard was famous. He, he was so quick, he, he could read anything. And there's a famous story with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. He came in to a rehearsal and and there, there was a new piece that had just you know been written that it was about to be premiered and he came in and he opened the score and it went crack <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> and, he, and he said to the orchestra oh i've really given myself away today <laughs> <laughs> he, he was wonderful he was very good to me you know i was under his wing when I first conducted at Glamborn, and, and uh, he was great. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no. Where were we? Yeah, so, um, no, I, uh, you know, I never had a definite, you know, it was a new piece, and you sit down and you study it, and then, you know, uh, go over to the piano and just bang a few notes down just to get yeah. pitches in your head. Something. But, um, no, I was never... I never had a, a process that I regularly went through. Was, I always used to wing it, really. But mm. and I was sometimes more, more prepared than others. I was never in that position of <laughs> having the score crack when you yeah. <laughs> open up the first rehearsal. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I remember Pat, Yorma Panela telling us when I studied with him that that was a surefire way of showing the orchestra you hadn't bothered to learn the piece if the if the score cracked or you opened it up and then it shut itself back again <laughs> because the pages had never been opened. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, some bindings are more stubborn than others. You know. Yes, they are. <laughs> But yeah, I think some things to... take a long time to lay flat with it of their own accord. <laughs> yes, that's true. I do remember one conductor during my 22 years as a player in Birmingham with the CBSO. I do remember that happening on a Monday morning and us all looking at each other thinking, well, <laughs> that piece hasn't been looked at. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a good <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> uh, uh, my other question to you yeah. uh, because, again, you know, over a 50 year career. 
thousands of notes um, have gone through your brain. Um, various composers. I mean, you know, I'm going to say right out now that I was introduced to a record you'd made with the BBC Philharmonic of the two symphonies of York Boeing. The second symphony of York Boeing, I think, is a work of genius. And uh, that recording is... Just, Isn't it? Yeah, staggeringly good. But really, my question is... Are there, are there any areas of the repertoire that you think, do you know what, I wish I'd had more time to to delve into that? Or I wish I knew more of his music or her music. Uh, is there anything you're dying to still conduct that you, you know, I just haven't, I've never got round, I don't know, off the top of my head, I've never done the Nielsen symphonies or I've never done, you know, whatever. What, what areas do you wish you could delve into? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, I have now Finally, I mean, uh, Sibelius mm. was an area where, I, you know, I, I conducted Second Symphony a lot and the Fifth Symphony a lot and the Seventh Symphony quite a bit. Mm. And where I was with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, I did the Fourth and the Third. I did the Third in Toronto as well. But uh, as of about a year or was it two years ago, I never conducted the Sixth Symphony. Mm. Or the first, wow. which is, you know. Uh, and so finally, I, I did the both, actually with the BBC Philharmonic. Mm. Uh, and um, so, and of the Nielsen, I, I adore Nielsen, adore Nielsen, but I've never conducted the first symphony, nor the sixth, the mm. Symphonia, so-called Semplice, which, which <laughs> it definitely isn't at all. It, <laughs> it's a, a, absolutely bonkers piece and i'd love to do it but uh, one of the problems i have to say mm. one of the problems nowadays in the last i don't know how many years but it's programming is becoming what i might call safer mm. all the time you know and i look at some of the programs i did when i the, the 40th anniversary of my first concert in, in Toronto, they produced this huge book, which has every program I conducted in in, in mm. Toronto. And and there was one program, for instance, <clears throat> the second half, and I can't remember which, you know, I, I think it was together in the second half, which is absolutely stupid because they're both great pieces, but in juxtaposition, but it was Sibelius Tapiola, which, you know, is his last piece he wrote after mm. the after the Seventh Symphony, which I think is absolutely mesmerizing piece, and, and the Berg three pieces for orchestra. <laughs> but you know, I mean, if you just if you want to do a program with those two pieces in it, maybe with the BBC Symphony Orchestra you get away with it. But nowadays, you know, a manager that you propose that program to would want to lock you up. Mm. You know, mm. mental institution. <laughs> so anyway, to answer your question, there's a. Um, you know, I, I've only ever conducted the last three Bruckner symphonies, mm. and I'd like to do some of the earlier ones. There are certain Schumann pieces that uh, I've always been fascinated with, but I've never done. This one called Der Rosa Pilgerfahrt, The Pilgrimage of the Rose, mm. which is it's a sort of like, you know, Little Mermaid story, or whatever, you know, this is a, a flower who wants to, a rose, who wants to be human. And, mm. and everyone says, don't be, don't be so silly. Well, mm. she gets to her wish and it doesn't work out, you know. So, uh, and it's, um, it's a beautiful piece. 
And years ago, when, when Pierre Boulez was the chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, I remember, I think Robert Ponsonby was uh, in charge then. And I, he said, there's anything you'd like to do? And I said, I'd like to do Daryl Olsen Pilkerfart. And he said, oh, oh, that's interesting. He, you know, he looked it up, he didn't know it. And he said, oh, that's lovely. Next thing I know, Boulez is doing it. I'm so <laughs> curious. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other Schumann pieces, Paradis and Dipere, and, um, and the, the, the Schumann Faust scenes, uh, mm. the things like that I'd, I'd like to do. Um, well, there we are. It's, it's, a, it's a call to any managers who listen to my podcast. Uh, you, can get, <laughs> you can get Sir Andrew Davis yeah. to, if, you may, if you ask him to do Nielsen 1 or 6 or any of the first six Brooklyn Symphonies <laughs> yeah. or, or some lovely pieces of Schumann. Andrew, it is time for the 10 questions. And as ever, I start with... What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? What sound or noise do I love? Mm. I love the sound of birdsong. That's easy. Mm. And what noise do I hate? Well, I, we have this very nice apartment in Chicago right now where we've been living for the last four or five years. And it's terrific. It, it overlooks the, the place where the two branches of the Chicago River meet before they flow out into Lake Michigan. Mm. But the only thing that is not so great about it is the elevated railroad, the L, mm. is right underneath us, <laughs> outside the window. So, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we keep the doors and windows shut a lot of the time, but when we want to open them, you have to if you go out on the balcony and you're trying to have a conversation when the L comes thundering past. So that I know it's a very silly thing, but that's the thing that annoys me most at the moment. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Uh, the, the simple answer to that was if, if it were possible, I would go and walk in the woods somewhere. Hmm. Uh, but, but you want something musical. No, no, I don't want that. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. No, I don't want musical. No, okay, no, no, no I, absolutely. You know, I, I grew up, I grew up in, uh, in Watford, mm. uh, on the outskirts of Watford, and right behind me were, were the, the, the Casbury Park and the Whippendale Woods and the Grand Union Canal. And, you know, um, that's what I, I'm a country boy at heart. So, mm. and I haven't spent as much. I mean, we. I was fortunate in the years I was with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in Glyndebourne. We lived in Sussex. Um, so, yes, nature. Simple answer. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, that's actually, that's easy. It's Barbara Olley. Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, at the time when I was a student, when I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, uh, I had two heroes. One, one was Barbara Olley and the other was Klemperer. I mean, hmm. completely different opposite ends because um, uh, he... Barbara Ollie, you know, for English music, Mahler, uh, and of course, Klemperer for, for Beethoven above all. And I saw them both conduct quite a bit. Um, and actually, I met Barbara Ollie twice. And the second time when I was engaged uh, and my wife was playing in the Halley Orchestra at the time, and she introduced me and said, this is my fiancé, Andrew Davis. He wants to be a conductor. And he said, you must be mad. 
<laughs> he had this funny way of talking, you know, mm. just no. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, but he, uh, the, the, he always made music with such love, you know, mm. relish. Uh, and then Klemper, of course, was, was the kind of discipline and, and tradition. Um, uh, yes, so the, those, those two. Brilliant. I'm, off the top of my head, I'm sure Klemper has not been mentioned before, and I think Barbara Ollie may have been mentioned in passing, but not, not as often as others. Um, you know, Carlos Kleiber's. Yeah. About once every, uh, twice, two times every three. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's so, so predictable to say Kleiber. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, he um, was he was remarkable. Yeah. Um, the next question is somewhat harder, or at least many of the conductors have told me it's a lot harder. Which is, who would be a favourite current conductor? Bernard Heiting. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's still at it, just. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, um, I I I love Bernard, uh, and the other person is uh, in, in the younger generation. I am absolutely wildly enthusiastic. Is Jakob Kruse? Okay, yeah. Who I think is a marvelous conductor. We actually we actually met at Glyndebourne, where <laughs> ironically enough, and this was something like 2011-12, I think. He was conducting the turn of the screw, and I was conducting Rusalka, which is you know you could say it's the wrong way round. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, no, he he's he's fabulous. I think of the younger generation, I I, I rate him very very highly. And now, um, you you tried to answer this question earlier, but um, but here it is now. Um, what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, it's a tie, and they both oh. were things. I did in Stu no, no, with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Mm. One was uh, the Mask of Orpheus, Harry Birtwistle, mm. which we did in the festival hall, and we had two weeks rehearsal for it. Huh. Huge orchestra with no strings, but you know, like uh, seven trombones. I, I'm off anyway, and and ten percussion players with as many instruments as you've ever seen in your life. Mm. Uh, it was a huge success because the piece had such an extraordinary history, which I won't bore you with. But uh, and Harry was beside himself. But it was very very tricky. And I remember uh, one of the players in the orchestra, actually it was Bill Houghton, the principal trumpet, coming to me. We'd been at it for a week, and he said. He said, I think tomorrow should be cake day. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we'll get everyone to bring cakes. So at the end of the rehearsal, he, he, he came and said, we'd like everyone to bring a cake tomorrow. <laughs> so the next day, you know, we've been at it for hours and we were sort of about a third of the way through the afternoon. And I said, all right, that's it. <laughs> it's cake time. And <laughs> so we all ate cake. <laughs> um, but the other and the other occasion was it was the week before the Christmas break, and we recorded again. Just that was just a studio uh, recording oh. of Ulisse by Dalla Piccola, okay, which is which is, had some pretty amazing things in it, but it was about the hardest thing, partly because with Dalla Piccola, you know, the music is very subtle, mm. and he's very specific with dynamics and so on. Uh, and that was really, really tough. 
and uh, so it, it's an opera. And uh, Alan Opie sang the the title role. And uh, we again, we've known each other for years, and he was bitching at me and saying. Well, you know, I've had to learn this fiendish stuff and, you know, what good is it going to do me? And then I saw a couple of years later, he said, well, actually, you know, there was a suite made from, from the opera. And he said, I've actually been to three places and <laughs> just for, you know, just for the baritone and all. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, actually, for me, the answer is, is, is a book. Mm. I mean, and, and, and I always take a book, and I, mean, I don't mean, you know, a whodunit or Agatha Christie. I mean, a, 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 a serious book. Mm. Uh, and I didn't always open it. But for me, uh, because, you know, I, I do more serious, well, I used to anyway, do more serious reading on the road than I, than I do at home. Mm. And, uh, you know, I had, I had to have surgery, well, 10 years ago, probably, or maybe more, I don't remember. But, um, on my leg and I was in bed for about three weeks. And my wife kept sending over to anybody, he's gonna be a terrible patient, he's gonna be impossible. I was fascinated, I read 17 books and I had the best time in my life. So yeah, that, I mean, that's a sort of weird answer, but that's my answer. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Being able to click my heels in my red shoes and say, Take me home to Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I know, doing without the travel mm. is the answer. Right, that's, that's exactly it. Boring. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could be, invent a pair of um, red shoes from the Wizard of Oz or Star Trek's "Beam Me Up, Scotty" and take me home, then wouldn't it be? Easy? Yes, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would have liked to have taught classics in a in a nice school. Because mm. actually my first hero was my classics master at Watford Grammar School. And um, I loved it and I loved him. And uh, in fact, uh, I, I took a, an entrance exam in classics at New College Oxford at, at his urging. <laughs> but then, you know, I took the old scholarship trials at King's and that was it. But I do love Latin and Greek. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, uh, I'd start with a Negroni, mm. um, which is my favourite tipple. Mm. Um, and then I would, I would have my own, well, I might say my own recipe. It's from an Italian cookbook by a woman called Marcella Hazan, and it's... Uh, it's rabbit. Mm. It, it's it, it's a marvelous dish of ra rabbit that you cook very slowly with uh, tomatoes and celery and white wine and rosemary and and uh, and you know some people won't eat rabbit, but uh, I think it's I, I think it's absolutely delicious and it's it's the favorite thing that I make. Mm. Which is not to say that I don't think there are other things in restaurants that I have requested over the years that don't surpass it, but it, that's my favourite thing to eat. Mm. Brilliant. <laughs> there you go. That sounds wonderful. Um, much as the last two hours have been a wonderful time, I really enjoyed chatting to you, Andrew, and I hope you stay safe and you stay healthy, and I hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, Mike, and I hope we'll see each other 
in the not-too-distant future. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who studied in her native New Zealand before leaving to study in America. Her career has seen her conduct all over the world and led her to having title positions in both the United States and Canada. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>